The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 36 A Balmy 69 Degrees On March 26, 1993, the leader of Russia's legislature announced it would try to head off a vote on ousting President Boris Yeltsin. A decade after Japanese automakers began manufacturing cars in the United States, they began shipping them to Japan, Taiwan, and the Middle East and Europe. Benjamin Netanyahu resoundingly won a nationwide primary to become leader of the Nikud party in Israel, while U.S. President Bill Clinton weighed arms for Bosnia and also announced he would consider separating U.S. military troops by sexual orientation. And after the strongest quake to hit the Pacific Northwest in years rumbled through Oregon, cracking the Capitol Rotunda, the country continued to recover from the storm of the century as tornadoes, a blizzard, an ice storm, high winds, and storm surges had led to 318 fatalities and as much as 5.5 billion in damages. At the height of the storm, it spanned from Canada to Honduras, roughly 3,019 miles. It produced 56 inches of snow at Mount Leconte, Tennessee, 23 inches in Chattanooga, 13 inches in Birmingham, 10 inches in Atlanta, and 3 inches in Mobile, Alabama. The mammoth storm affected 26 states and caused snowdrifts up to 35 feet in the Appalachian Mountain regions. The Florida Panhandle witnessed 4 inches of snow of its own, the strong Direco storm surge that was as high as 12 feet in Appalachia Bay in the Panhandle, down to the north of Tampa Bay. As many as 60,000 lightning strikes were recorded with this wide-ranging and impacting storm for a total of 72 hours. And nearly 40 percent, 120 million, of the United States population witnessed impacts from this storm. The height of the storm, more than 10 million people were without power. In local news, an in-depth economic analysis by the Peoria Journal Star reported that the Paradise Riverboat Casino had taken in 61 million from the 1.5 million people who had bought tickets for its excursion. Spending an average of $50 per passenger, which helped to generate $10.3 million for state coffers and $2.1 million for both the Peoria and East Peoria bank accounts. Meanwhile, in Canton, Illinois, the weather was a 42 degrees with blue skies and a 17 mile per hour wind out of the northeast, as Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer and Canton Police Detective Marty Bowden interviewed Donald Bull's friend Russell Stuffelbeam at his residence in Canton, Illinois at 9.50 a.m in order to further gather information concerning the death of Donna and Justine Tompkins. After Russell confirmed he had grown up with Donnie Bull, Detective Bowden asked if he had helped Donnie deliver a couch to Donna Tompkins' apartment. Russell confirmed that he had, though he could not remember the exact date, and that he believed they used his truck to deliver it. He said Donna was not at home at the time, and Donnie found the key and the cash in the mailbox and unlocked the door. 
that it was too dark to see. They flicked on their lighters, and the place appeared that someone had just moved in. He also stated that Donnie locked the door as they left. They went to his house after, and that no, he had not been back to Donna's apartment since delivering the full-size sofa bed. He told the agents when asked that Donnie had never said anything to him about the killing of Donna and her daughter Justine, and that he was a truck driver, and on the road the week of the fire. At 10.22 a.m., the investigator spoke with David Nell at his residence. David stated that he was good friends with Donnie and had known him his whole life. Investigator Boaten asked David the same questions about delivering the couch, and David acknowledged the same, that they had picked it up at Donnie's house, delivered it, that Donna wasn't home, Donnie found the key, they used lighters to see, and that Donna must have been moving in at the time because he saw only one box in her apartment, and that Donnie returned the key to the mailbox after they had locked up and they left. Investigator Boaten inquired what David was doing on January 12th of 93, the night before the fire at Donna's. David said he had been playing cards with Donnie at his girlfriend Rochelle Hillmeyer's home on 2nd Avenue. He said that they met up at her home around 6 or 6.30 p.m. and that Rochelle was there. However, he did not remember if anyone else was present at the house. Special Agent Kedzer asked David if Doug Brody was there, and David said he was, but he had left around 9 p.m. But David stated when asked that he did not believe Mike Price was there that night. Agent Kedzer then asked if he and Donnie had gone on a beer run that night, and David said yes, the first time they went to Twins Liquors to buy some beer, and then later Donnie and Rochelle went together. David also stated that Donnie gave him a ride home around 2 a.m., which would have been Wednesday morning, the 13th, and that they stopped at Harper's gas station to pick up cigarettes before Donnie dropped them off at home. David said that Donnie left immediately, and that he went inside, and that his parents, whom he had been living with, were at home at the time. He said he went to bed and did not get up until 9 or 10 a.m. the next morning, and that later that day, he talked to Donnie. And Donnie told him he had gotten a flat tire on the way home. David told the investigators that he had first heard about the fire at Donna's when he read it in the paper, and that all Donnie had said to him that day about the fire was that he had seen smoke and heard sirens on his way to work. And the officers took note that Donnie, in fact, had not gone to work that day. David stated that Donnie never spoke to him about Donna before or after the fire, but that Donnie always talked about girls he had slept with. But no, he had never mentioned having sex with Donna. Agent Kedzer asked David if he had gone to Donna's the night he had been playing cards with Donnie, and David said it was possible, but that he did not think that they had. Two days later, on Sunday, March 28th, Canton Police Chief Mike Elam received a late-night phone call at home. He answered to hear he missed Kim Hammond on the line. She was calling from a tavern on the outskirts of town called Josie B's. Kim said she had some critical information about the murder of a little girl and her mother that could not wait. She said she was afraid, and the chief, half asleep, sat up straight as Kim said she refused to talk to anyone but him about the matter. Chief Elam agreed to speak with her and told Kim he would send a squad car to Josie B's to pick her up and take her back to the police department where he would meet her. The chief hurriedly dressed and told his wife that something had come up and at 11.33pm he met with Kim in the interview room at the department and it was evident to the chief that Kim was intoxicated and very emotionally upset. Donnie Bull killed the little girl and the lady on South First, she said. 
and the chief asked if she was referring to Donna Tompkins, and she said yes. Last Sunday night, I was out at the Suburban, and Donnie kept bothering me, and she went on. I told him to leave me alone, she said, but he told me Dave was in Vietnam, and he knows how to kill people without leaving a trace of evidence. When I asked him, said the Dave Donnie was referring to was David Nell. I told Donnie that Dave's too young to have been in Vietnam, and Donnie said that Dave's brother was in Vietnam, and that he taught Dave how to kill, and then Donnie grabbed me by the arm and held it tight before walking away. Kim then showed Chief Elam her upper left arm, and the Chief saw a bruise consistent with being grabbed by someone. When asked, Kim stated the Sunday night she was referring to was March 21st, and she added that Joanne Wright was with her when Donnie approached her at the Suburban. Peggy and Vicky run around with Donnie. You should talk to them, she said. They might know more. Kim then stated that on the following Tuesday afternoon at around 4 p.m., Donnie came to her door at her home and told her not to talk with anyone about what he had said. He said he would kill me if I did, Kim said, as she started to cry. She said in tears that she was scared to death of Donnie and David Nell, adding, I know he killed them too. following day, March 29th, at 10.55 a.m., Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer and Canton Police Detective Sergeant Dave Ayers went to Rochelle Hillmeyer's residence to inquire if she would sign a consent to search for her residence for items of evidence concerning the deaths of Donna and Justine. Rochelle permitted the investigators to search her home and sign the form. She said that Donnie stored his things at her house before he had moved in, that Donnie had never stated she could not touch his belongings, and that anything Donnie had stored there could be accessed by anyone that Donnie did not have any rooms or areas to the house to himself. As the officers entered the southwest bedroom where Donnie and Rochelle had slept, they found a Bailey's Irish cream liquor box next to a dresser. Upon emptying the contents onto the bed, a gold ring with a clear stone, one with a black setting, and a key was found. When asked, Rochelle stated that Donnie had shown her the ring with the black setting in the past, and that he had said he found it in a couch working at Wright's Furniture in Canton. Agent Kedzer provided Rochelle with a receipt for the item seized. Then Detective Ayers asked for permission to search Rochelle's 1975 Chevrolet. Rochelle gave verbal consent, but no articles of evidentiary value were found, and the officers departed the home at 11.37 a.m. a.m. Agent Kedzer met with Donnie's ex-wife, Jill Gray, at the Canton Police Department. Jill stated that she first met Donnie in 1986 at a bar in Canton. She said that at the time, she was living in Pekin, Illinois, and that she had dated Donnie until May of 87 when they were married. She added that they were married for four and a half years and were divorced in July of 91. Jill characterized her marriage to Donnie as being okay the first couple of years but things started to go downhill after the first two. Jill blamed part of the reason for the breakup of their marriage on the fact that they did not have much money, adding that Donnie did not want to work, and that she was forced to work two or three jobs at a time in an attempt to make ends meet. She further recalled that at times, Donnie would lie to her and say that he was working when in fact he was not. During their marriage, Jill said, Donnie would become violent and that usually these episodes occurred when Donnie had been drinking 
and then on one occasion, he had damaged her car while at Donnie's mother's home one evening. She added that she and Donnie had been drinking at a bar in Canton, and when Donnie became intoxicated, she wanted to leave. Donnie grew angry and followed her, which led to a confrontation at the home. Donnie struck her in the face and pushed her around, and during the struggle, Donnie accidentally burned his mother with a cigarette, which led to Donnie going berserk, breaking out a window of Jill's car with a hammer trying to get at her. She said that eventually the police arrived and requested that Donnie stay at his mother's house alone while Jill was to leave the house for the night. Jill told Agent Kedzer that during these episodes, Donnie had threatened to kill her and that it was common for him to strike her or push her around. And on one or more occasions, Donnie had threatened her with a knife, saying he would stab her to death and dispose of her body and that it would never be found. Jill noted that because of incidents such as these, and Donnie's inability to find work, she left him in February of 91. Jill said that after leaving Donnie, she obtained an order of protection against him, and subsequently moved to her father's apartment at Villa Barden Apartment Complex on North Knoxville, across from Proctor Hospital in Peoria. Later that February, she said, she and her father observed Donnie inside her car, parked outside in the parking lot. She said she could see Donnie in the vehicle, appearing to be messing with the steering column or ignition, and that she called the Peoria police, who eventually arrived at the apartment complex, but not before Donnie had departed in a pickup truck. She said that she made a police report and was told to call again if Donnie returned to the property. A short time later, Donnie and another man returned, and when the police arrived, they located Donnie near her car. Donnie was arrested, but the charges were never prosecuted, she added. And when asked, she said that the man with Donnie was named Jim, but that was all she knew him by, and that Jim was not arrested on the scene. Jill told the agent that in March, she had been going through a formal divorce proceeding with Donnie, and that at that time, Donnie was living with Ron Henderson on North 10th Avenue in Canton, and that she too was living in Canton. She said that Donnie came to her home the day before the final divorce papers were to be signed, that Donnie had come by to pick up some of his belongings. Donnie had been friendly toward her on that day until the incident that occurred in the bedroom, that is, in which she described in detail to the officer how Donnie raped her and was subsequently arrested, but that Donnie was found not guilty of these charges during trial. Special Agent Kedzer noted that he was familiar with this incident, having already acquired the Kent Police Department reports, which referenced the matter. Jill said that at the time, her mother had been receiving harassing phone calls from someone she felt was Donnie. She elaborated by stating that the phone calls consisted of heavy breathing and mainly occurred in the middle of the night, and when answered, the caller would hang up. She added that these calls did happen all day as well, but mostly at night, but that she never attempted to do anything about them. Jill told the agent that she felt as if Donnie's attitude had drastically changed after the death of his mother who passed away on Halloween of 1990. She said she felt that Donnie's mental state and attitude had gone downhill after that. Jill expounded by saying that Donnie had become distant, did not like to talk to anyone, and that he could not find steady work after her death. She described sex with Donnie as rough, but said that he had never asked her to do anything which involved choking. Jill had gone deeper into detail about their sexual episodes, but they have since been retracted from police reports, and hopefully for good reason. 
Joe told the agent that Donnie liked to burn things, and that at any opportunity he could, he would gather leaves, sticks, grass, and other items and burn them in the yard. She said he did this often, and that Donnie would say, the bigger the fire, the better. Joe recalled that Donnie would hide things under their bed and on the top shelf of their closet. That some of the items he would hide included a knife, the same one that he had used to threaten her during their marriage. Jill also stated, when asked, that Donnie usually drank beer, but she could not say what brand. He would occasionally drink shots of tequila or Jack Daniels, she said, and the troubles she had with Donnie usually occurred when Donnie was drinking liquor. Special Agent Kedzer then asked Jill if she knew of any of the following suspects who had had problems with Donnie before and after their marriage. She added that she knew of another female suspect who had been raped by Donnie, who was now living in Oklahoma, but that she could not recall her name, but mentioned that she would check with her friends and get back to him. In closing, Jill stated that she had no personal knowledge of what precisely could implicate Donnie in the deaths of the Tompkins, and that to her knowledge, her mother had no information other than speculation, but that she had heard a rumor that Donnie was friends with Donna's estranged husband, John Tompkins. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a moment to stop and ponder, if ever there was one. Jill and her mother had heard a rumor that Donnie was friends with Donna's estranged husband, John Tompkins. p.m. Special Agent Kedzer spoke with Jeffrey Bennett at the Kenton Police Department. Sat in a metal chair in the interview room, Jeff told the agent that he is the manager of the Usco gas station located at 509 South 5th Avenue in Canton. He said he has been employed there for around 10 years. Regular shifts are from 5.30 a.m. until around 2.30 p.m. He added that upon leaving work, he would take the day's receipts to a local bank, and then he finishes his work day. Jeff told the agent that he did, in fact, know Donnie Bull, but did not consider him a friend of Donnie's. He said that his knowledge of Donnie is limited to Donnie purchasing gas at the station, that Donnie usually fills up the truck for Wright's Furniture, where he works as a delivery man. Okay, hit pause. Was not Jeff Bennett witness playing cards with Donnie at Rochelle's home the night of January the 12th by Rochelle herself? Does this not exceed Jeff's knowledge of Donnie being limited to Donnie filling up at the station. Jeff said that Donnie was often accompanied by another employee of Wright's Furniture with long red hair and a beard. This is believed to be Mike Price. Jeff stated that Donnie would purchase the gas with cash and be reimbursed by Wright several times a week. Jeff also stated that he has never done anything socially with Donnie. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff said he had seen Donnie at local taverns, including Bruin Q in Canton, and the Sportsman Club in Banner, but little elsewhere, and certainly did not mention anything about a card game at Rochelle's house. In closing, Jeff advised that to his knowledge, his girlfriend, Stephanie Lansford, was not friends with Donnie, that Stephanie is considerably younger than himself and Donnie, and that he has no reason to believe that Stephanie has even heard of Donnie's name. No further information was obtained and the interview was concluded at approximately 3.05 p.m. with no mention or questioning as to Jeff's whereabouts on the night of January the 12th, including the supposed attendance at Donnie's card game at Rochelle Hillmeyer's home the evening before the deadly fire at the Tompkins residence. 
Additionally, there is no mention of his memories that morning, whether he had seen Donnie or spoken with him or not. Nothing, nada, zilch. p.m. Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer invited Douglas Brody to the Canton Police Department. Doug had a seat and told the agent that he had known Donnie for about a year, maybe two, and that he had met him through his neighbor, David Nell. Doug said he recalled that Donnie and David had lived together for a short time before Donnie moved in with Rochelle on 2nd Avenue, and that, to his knowledge, Donnie was a good guy. Doug then elaborated when asked stating that he would occasionally stop and talk with David and Donnie if he saw them out front in the driveway of their home, and that on one occasion, he had helped David and Donnie work on a car out front. When asked, Doug said yes. He had played cards on one or two occasions at Donnie's home on 2nd, stating that the last occasion would have been sometime in January of 93. Doug said he had given David Nell a ride to Donnie and Rochelle's that evening of the 12th, and that, to the best of his recollection, they arrived around 8 or 8.30 p.m. that evening. He said that they played a card game called Blitz, and that he could only remember himself, Donnie, and David present, and that they were drinking beer, playing cards, and talking, but that he only stayed around an hour, and that he would have left no later than 9 or 9.15 p.m. In closing, Doug told Agent Kedzer that he did not know Donna or Justine, and never heard Donnie speak of either victim. At 4.45 p.m., Agent Kedzer had traveled to Marietta, Illinois to sit down with another Jeffrey, this time a man named Jeff Ashley. Jeff told the agent that he had known Donnie Bull for around three and a half years, and that he had met him through Mike Price, who had known Donnie Bull most of his life, and described his own relationship with Donnie as superficial at best, an acquaintance, but not a friend per se. Jeff said he had become more friendly with Donnie, however, in late 92 or early 93, stating that the last time he had seen Donnie was at Rochelle's home when he had been helping Donnie move some of his belongings there from Cuba. He said he was friends with Rochelle, whom he had met through another associate of his, Butch Miser. Jeff added shortly after this day, Donnie had moved in with Rochelle. To the best of Jeff's knowledge, he recalled that he had been to Rochelle's on two or three occasions, and that this would have been in January or February of 93, obviously after the time he had helped Donnie move the furniture from Cuba to Rochelle's but nothing was noted. Jeff said that on some of these occasions, he and his girlfriend, Michelle Brooks, played cards with Donnie. And that one time, possibly early 93, he, Michelle, Mike Price, Rudy White, and Donnie were all there together, but that he believed he and Michelle only stayed a short time, adding that he does not stay anywhere late if he must go to work the following day. Jeff said that he remembered being there on a Friday night, and that Donnie was throwing a party at Rochelle's, he then consulted his pocket calendar and said, yes, I believe it was a Friday, Friday the 22nd, 1993. This would have been roughly one week after the fire. He told Agent Kedzer that he had arrived at the conclusion through the process of elimination. He claimed that there were around 8 to 10 people there that evening. He, his girlfriend Michelle, Rochelle, Donnie, and two younger white guys around 18 to 20 years old. He described one of the males as being hefty built, black or dark hair that the other one was tall, thin, with long blonde hair closely cropped on top. Essentially, a mullet. Jeff said there may have been other individuals in and out of the residence that evening, but that he recalled he and Michelle would have arrived around 4.30 to 5 p.m. He said that upon arriving, a case of Michelob long neck type bottles of beer was in the refrigerator. 
and according to Jeff, they quickly drank the entire case of beer, and then at that time, a collection from war was taken. He said that Rochelle and Michelle made the beer run, and returned a short time later with another case of long necks, and when asked, that the case probably cost about $12 total. He said they continued to play cards, and that eventually, the beer ran out again. Which game? What's that? What card game did you play? Five-point pitch, said Jeff. Jeff told the agents he could recall that several people left as the evening wore on, and that he and Michelle, along with Donnie and possibly another guy, left Rochelle sometime around midnight. He said they had driven to the home of Christy Rinch, but that she was not home at the time, so they proceeded on to the home of Bruno Price, also located in Canton. Jeff then said that they drank beer and partied with Bruno at his house until sometime after 1am, and that he knew what time it was because on their return to Rochelle's, as he recalled, the bars in Canton were all closed as they drove past the town square. He said they dropped Donnie off and that he was extremely drunk by that point. Agent Kedzer asked if Jeff was sure the party occurred after the fire at the Tompkins. And Jeff stated that a newspaper article had been present during the party, and it was all about the fire in which Don and Justine had been killed. He said there had been a general conversation about the fire and Donna, and that Donnie had mentioned that he knew Donna and had sold her a couch sometime before the fire. Jeff further recalled that someone mentioned that Donna had worked with Mike Price's wife, Iona, and then he said that Donnie said he did not feel the fire was an accident. Donnie had said that he felt Donna's estranged husband, John Tompkins, may have been responsible for their deaths. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, had John and Donnie actually been friends? This was a question Agent Kezer did not ask Jeff, but he did ask if, in the past, before the fire, he had heard Donnie speak about Donna. And Jeff said he had heard him talking of a woman named Donna, but that he did not know if Donnie was referring to Donald Tompkins or another lady named Donna. Jeff said that on several occasions when he and others would speak about women, Donnie would make mention of a Donna. And he recalled that during these conversations, Donnie would make statements to the effect of wanting to fuck certain women that he knew. Jeff also said that around two days before the fire, he and Michelle had also been at Rochelle's, and that he had brought along a 12-pack of beer, but that they were only there an hour or two. But one begs the question if this would have been the night of the 12. He also said that less than a week after the fire, he and Donnie had been riding together in Donnie's car, which would have been Rochelle's, and that Donnie took him by Donna's burnt-out apartment on First Avenue and showed him the damage to the house. Again, Donna's apartment was only a couple blocks south of Donnie and Rochelle's, so this could have been a casual pass-by, as First Avenue was a common route to take downtown. He said that Donnie made some statements to the effect that this is where the woman was killed in the fire. In closing, Jeff stated that both Donnie and Mike Price had told him that, on occasion, they would steal furniture from rights and sell it on their own, keeping the profits. p.m. Special Agent Kedzer next spoke with Jeff Ashley's girlfriend, Michelle Brooks, at her home. Michelle told Agent Kedzer that Jeff was her boyfriend and that she is acquainted with some of his friends and associates. She said that she had known Jeff for three, three and a half years, maybe four, and that they had been dating for most of that time. When asked, Michelle acknowledged that she was familiar with Donnie Bull 
and that she and Jeff had been to the home Donnie shares with Rochelle Hillmeyer two or three times at least, and that the last time she and Jeff would have been there was around three to four weeks ago. She stated that she did not remember anything about that night, or even recall if Donnie was there at the time, which I personally find odd. But yes, she had been there when people had been drinking and playing cards. She said that she remembers one evening when she, Jeff, Donnie, Rochelle, Mike Price, and two younger guys there, whom she described much in the same way Jeff had. She added that some were playing cards and that she felt as though this evening was after the fire, elaborating by saying that she remembers people at the party talking about the fire and that one individual stated the fire occurred only two to three blocks away from Rochelle's, but that the conversation was of a general nature. Michelle told Agent Ketzer that she cannot recall Donnie saying anything in particular about the fire or Donna Tompkins, adding, As far as I know, Donnie Bull is a good guy. He has never been in trouble with the law that I know of. In closing, Michelle stated that to her knowledge, Donnie treated his girlfriend Rochelle and her children, quote, very well. March 30, Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers began his day with an interview with Joanne Wright, who had, on her own, arrived at the station requesting to speak with the lead detective on the case. Joanne told Sergeant Ayers in the privacy of the interview room that she and Kim Hammond, if you recall the same Kim that had contacted the police chief late at night, were at a local tavern, the Suburban, on Sunday, March 21st, when they were approached by Donnie Bull. Joanne said that Kim began talking about things stolen from her mother's home when Donnie, whom Joanne added lived two houses south of Kim's mother, stated, Don't worry about it anymore. I'll take care of it. And then Donnie went on to say he would stop them even if he had to kill them, saying, I can kill and get away with it. Sergeant Ayers asked Joanne how she took Donnie's statements, whether they were serious or off the cuff. And Joanne stated that Donnie scared her, saying, He seemed real serious. I don't think he was joking. And then she added that when Kim began talking about Donnie's threats of killing someone, Donnie told her to stop, saying, Drop it right there. Just let it go. But Joanne said she left the table a few times while Donnie was speaking to them, and that he was constantly touching Kim on the shoulder, arm, and even on the upper chest. And Kim pushed Donnie's hand away several times, and nearly had to make a complaint to the bartender about it. Sergeant Ayers then met up with Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, and the two followed up with David Nell with an invitation to the Canton Police Department, where they sat down with him at 1 p.m. in the cramped interview room, where David said, Yeah, me and Donnie Bull are good friends. Been that way since kindergarten. David said that on Tuesday, January 12th, he was over at Donnie and Rochelle's residence that evening playing cards, as he had mentioned before. He described the game they were playing as blitz, like 21 but to 31. He said he had arrived at around 6.30 p.m. and had gotten a ride there with his neighbor Doug. He said that Doug stayed until about 9, and that the only people he could recall being there were Donnie, Hillmeyer, and her children. A stark difference in the number of people which other people there that night had told the investigators, Sergeant Ayers noted. David again stated that no, Mike Price was not there that night, and when asked if anyone stopped in later, again David replied no. He said that he and Donnie made a beer run when the Michelob ran out and that this time they bought Budweiser, and that they did not stop anywhere else, nor did they ride around town for a bit, no joyrides, they simply returned to Rochelle's. 
David said that he and Doug went for another case of beer later on, going once more to Twins Liquors, stopping by to buy a pack of cigarettes at Sicko Gas Station at 5th Avenue and Lynn, and then returning to Rochelle's. David told the detective that Rochelle went to bed around midnight, and that he and Donnie stayed up and finished off the beer until around 1, 1.30, when Donnie borrowed Rochelle's car to take him home. Sergeant Ayers noted that the vehicle was an older model Impala, bronze in color, and that David referred to Rochelle's car as the Tuna Boat. When they left Rochelle's, David said, they traveled south on 2nd Avenue to Oak Street, and then went east on 5th Avenue, where they took a left and stopped at Harper's Gas Station on the corner of 5th and Chestnut Street. David said he bought another pack of cigarettes, and then Donnie took him home. David continued, saying that from Harper's, they traveled east on Chestnut until they reached 11th Avenue and headed south to Walnut Street. They went west on Walnut until they arrived at David's parents' house, where he had been living, and pulled into the driveway. David said he finished his cigarette while Donnie finished a beer he had been drinking, that they talked for no longer than 10 minutes, and that Donnie then left, taking the alley to Maple Street. David said he went inside, watched some television before going to bed shortly thereafter. He said he got up about 9am with no hangover. Sergeant Harris asked David if he had seen Donnie that day, January the 13th, and he said he had seen him later that evening and that they talked of the fire on 1st Avenue. Sergeant Ayers asked what they had spoken about, and David replied twice, Nothing in general, nothing in general. Upon further questioning, David said they discussed having delivered a couch there, and that Donnie had seen smoke and the fire department responding that morning. But as far as David knew, he claimed that Donnie had gone to work that day. There was another party at Donnie's about a week later, he said and David told the detective that it was attended by five or six people, including himself, Donnie, and Rochelle. David said that he had been playing Nintendo in a room other than where Donnie was, and that he did not hear any conversations about Donna Tompkins nor the fire, and he added that the music was playing quite loud. David stated that he didn't think that Donnie knew Donna very well, and that Donnie probably wasn't her type. He also mentioned that Donnie had commented a time or two that Donna was beautiful, and he had also made statements about wanting to sleep with her, with statements like, I would like a piece of that ass, along with wanting to fuck her or hose her. When Sergeant Harris asked David how he thought Donnie felt about Donna, David did not reply. And after a few moments of awkward silence, he said, as far as he was aware, Donnie and Donna had met and seen each other only while out in public on two different occasions, and that neither time they were alone together. Sergeant Ayers then asked David if Donnie knew John Tompkins, finally the question of the hour. But David stated he didn't think so, but that Donnie was aware of John and Donna's messy divorce. David said that he felt that before Donnie teamed up with Rochelle, Donnie hoped to go out with Donna. He also said that Donnie had told him he had gotten a flat tire on his way home that night, but passed out in the car until a passing motorist woke him up. Donnie then changed the tire and drove home, but had never mentioned anything to David about having trouble with the jack. David also stated that either Mike Price or Rochelle had told him they had stopped over to Donna's that night. Ladies and gentlemen, a moment please. They had stopped over to Donna's that night. Whom? Mike Price? Rochelle Hillmeyer, Donnie Bull, 
Dave and Nell? Both? Or possibly the whole crew? And if so, why? And why leave her and her daughter dead if they had? Money? Sex? Revenge? Jealousy? However, Sergeant Ayers did not follow up on this bold statement made by Rochelle or Mike, and instead went on to ask David about any past incidents which had involved Donnie. David said that Donnie had been the driver of Rochelle's car when it struck a gas pump and guardrail at Harper's gas station. David added that when they were leaving the station, Donnie hit the pumps hard enough to cause David to hit his head on the windshield, causing him considerable pain. And when asked, David said he probably sees Donnie three to four times a week and that they like to drive around, road crews per se. And Donnie would whistle out the window and bark at females walking by and that Donnie felt that every girl on earth was in love with him. David said that he had been with Donnie the other night at the Suburban when Donnie had spoken with Kim Hammond, stating that he was sitting at the bar while Donnie kept going over to talk with Kim and her friend. He said that they left the Suburban with a girl named Peggy and Dave's sister-in-law named Vicky, that they went to the fish market tap, which is just off the square, where Donnie was flirting with Peggy until they left with another friend they had met up with, Russell Stuffleby. And when asked, David said that Donnie had never told him anything about roughing up women, but that he did like to brag about hosing them. David said he was unaware if Donnie returned the key to Donna's apartment to the mailbox after they had delivered the couch, that Donnie had locked the door, but that David had not really paid any attention. Do you believe Donnie is capable of murder? asked the detective. Yes, I do, said David. But he said he is unaware of Donnie finding any women's rings in any of the used furniture at Wright's. And when asked by Sergeant Ayers if he had told the truth about an alleged sexual assault a few months back, David said no, that he had lied for Donnie, adding that Donnie had asked him to lie so that he could have an alibi regarding the taking of two females out in a car when, as Donnie put it, he got a blowjob from one and fucked the other. But that no, Donnie had never mentioned anything about using force and actually had stated that he had not, that it was all consensual. When asked about his feelings about Donna and Justine, David said, That's a sick thing to do. They should skip the trial and just shoot him. And when asked about Donnie's latest trouble, David said, In my opinion, he won't see daylight for a while. He's going to be gone for a long time. This interview was completed at 1410 hundred hours, and as Sergeant David Ayers typed up his report, Dave Nell was returned home by Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the weather was a balmy 69 degrees, with 15 mile per hour winds out of the southeast. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>